0: Thirty-nine through 40. And it says, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so if you're really going to live it up on St. Patrick's Day in the United States, word has it that Boston is one of the best places to be. And that was the case back on March 18, 1990, which is a long time ago for some of you, before you were born. Like every year, and let me tell you, the 90s was awesome. So it was a rager for sure. Uh, Like every year, the celebrations lasted long into the night. But that night, 1.24 AM, an alarm was tripped inside the Gardner Art Museum. A security guard checked it out only to find two Boston police officers outside one of the entrances, and he let them in. Little did he know he had just enabled the biggest art heist in US history. The officers weren't officers at all. They were disguised criminals. The thieves handcuffed the security guards, wrapped their faces up in duct tape and trapped them in the basement. They disabled the security cameras and proceeded to steal 13 pieces worth half a billion dollars in 81 minutes. So one of those most famous pieces, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, was painted by the Dutch master Rembrandt. So here's an FBI image of the the museum the next day. You'll see several frames strewn about on the floor because the robbers had sort of cut out the paintings from their frames and left stuff all over. It was just a total mess. Now, there's a lot that makes a piece valuable as art. And that's probably a different lecture or a TED talk, so I won't get into that. But that is something I would love to geek out on. But for our purposes, both the the work itself and the contrasting story of its theft offer us some lessons for our study today. Kate, you can go to this. There's the painting. So Rembrandt's painting is from 1633 and is one of his largest and earliest. Like I mentioned, he was Dutch, and his depiction here reflects his own context. He isn't simply trying to recreate a historical scene, although he does, kind of. He's trying to tell a story. His scene has all 12 disciples here fighting for their lives on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And again, this is not, you know, like historically accurate. The ship probably would have looked more like something from the North Sea, closer to where he was. But one of them is seen even vomiting, if you want to go to the next one. The next image vomiting over the edge. You can't quite see it, but things are not going well for the disciples. Jesus is in the back of the boat, seemingly looking at peace somehow, serene even. Rembrandt captures both the physical danger and the spiritual turmoil occurring all around them. And if you can do some quick counting around the piece, you'll notice that there are actually 13 disciples here. Kate, you can go to the next photo. So if you're familiar with Rembrandt, you'll immediately notice a familiar face. I'm going to walk over here, this guy, grasping a rope and looking at you. It's a self-portrait of the artist himself. Rembrandt does at least three interesting things here. He actually does a lot of interesting things, but we'll pick three. He places himself alongside the terrified disciples of Jesus. He's immersed himself in their story, their fear, their doubt, their desperation, their confusion, their tested faith. It's an incarnation of the artist. He doesn't decide to show himself in the boat following the upcoming miracle we'll read about here in a bit. No, he inserts himself into the crazy. As the saying goes, he's in the same boat. And so is Jesus. Secondly, he reveals his identity as an artist in his own painting. It's not the only time he does this, which is why he's recognizable to somebody like me, but by placing himself in his own work, we remember that the painting itself is an effort of his, not just a historical recreation, but of creativity, of vocation, of his own human hopes and dreams. He pours himself into this work, and it is part of him in a sense, and in this case, it's representative of him, more literally. Lastly, he employs a painting technique that uses extreme contrasts of light and dark, and you can go to the next image here for that. The darkness becomes a dominating feature in this style, but as you sit with the darkness of the image for a while, you realize that there almost seems to be some blue sky peeking through the clouds. It's as though Jesus has already started working the miracle before he even speaks a word or claims or calms the waves. And notice that the mast almost is a subtle allusion to the cross in its shape, and it serves almost like a connector or a bridge from the darkness to the light. Okay, we're good on Rembrandt now. This year, we've been exploring the ways God reveals himself, how his kingdom is a kingdom of light and life, how his kingdom is manifested through Jesus in a multitude of ways and that it's wise to pause and reflect on how God seeks to teach us about himself to invite us into relationship, to invite us even into worship. Today we find the disciples in a true life or death situation. We know that at least Peter, Andrew, James, and John are there. Jesus has spent the entire day teaching the crowds along the Sea of Galilee, and now it's evening. And they decide to board a small boat and go to the other side of the lake. There are other boats around too, but their boat probably had at least this group of five on it. So the Sea of Galilee is actually not really a sea at all, meaning it's not salt water. It's a freshwater lake in Israel at around 700 feet below sea level. It's the second lowest lake in the world after the Dead Sea. It's about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. So we're going to start reading, start our reading back a bit to sort of include two of the parables that he explains prior to this event, just to give you some context leading into the waters of the Sea of Galilee. But our main point for today is this, the power of Jesus reveals who he is, and the mediation of Jesus reveals what he's like, meaning mediator. So we'll get into that language here in a minute. Here's Mark 4:26 26 through 41. First two parables are, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or get up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now the mustard seed. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? or What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Okay, now it's time for the storm. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So this story about the storm, is kind of like an action movie, right? It's like a parable come to life. But before we dive into the waters here, let's glance at Jesus' words in the parable of the growing seed. He said in verse 26, this is, the kingdom, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So if he's about to explain something like that, you kind of want to perk up your ears. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. So night and day, whether he sleeps or get ups, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. These parables about growing seeds are a reminder that things aren't always as they appear. And that much of what is most powerful, or maybe most mind blowing to us is simply invisible. Maybe it's because it's invisible, actually. The creation of life itself, gravity, dark matter, radiation, magnetism, things like faith, hope, and love, we see effects of it, but we can't like get it, right? And so much is happening beneath the surface, especially in the hidden times of something's germination or growth. You could look at today's story and just walk away, seeing Jesus rebuking some faithless disciples and think, I should have some more faith. And that kind of is the end of it, and that would be a good thing, I would say. But maybe there's more to it than that. So if you zoom out for a moment, the disciples are partaking in the very thing Jesus was just describing. They are still learning to wrap their minds around this, but they are in the very early stages of an incredible new thing that God is doing. And it feels somewhat invisible. They are like little seeds growing, little branches on a sprouting plant. They are part of something very special. They don't seem to grasp much of this yet, at least not fully. And we don't know what our lives will hold either, honestly. right? And so they face the terror of their own end. And as they did, they were confronted with a chance to do what people in their dying years tend to do. They just did it very quickly, which is they deal with God. So let's jump in the boat, and we'll see what happens. Now, I could be wrong, but I bet Jesus was like really, really tired. I'm imagining a full day maybe of doing this, but with hundreds and thousands of people, and no microphones, and no AC, and you, you get the idea. It's a lot, right, out in the sun. I mean, how, how tired would you have to be to fall asleep in this situation that's described, right? You'd have to be like dog tired, and then stay asleep He's really giving these disciples maybe like a vivid image of that seed analogy. Like he's taking it very literally. A man scatters on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts. Of course, the key difference here is unlike the parable, Jesus does know how a seed sprouts and grows. But the point is this, Jesus sees the invisible. He sees what we do not. He knows the seemingly unknowable. So lest you get a picture of kind of a comfy, privileged Jesus curled up in his flannel jammies, falling asleep, watching Netflix at the back of the boat on a cushion, right? He's resting his head on what Mark IV, you know, it says it's a a cushion, but it's likely a sandbag, right? This is not like comfortable, uh, used for ballast at the back of the ship. So he's just below the deck in this tiny vessel trying to get some sleep on a sandbag during an absolute rager of a storm, and he's exhausted. And remember, these disciples are fishermen. You've got two pairs of brothers, at least, Peter and Andrew and James and John. They are true mariners. They know how to sail. This is literally like their vocation. And yet they find themselves really, truly desperate So desperate, in fact, that they begin to take their frustration out on Jesus, or at least it seems that way. Now, if I'm in a life-threatening storm on a body of water with a bunch of other expert sailors, I first thought probably wouldn't be, we need like the sleepy carpenter, right? They cry out to Jesus, not because he's a skilled mariner, right, but because they kind of expected something else to happen. They're well past the point of being able to figure this out on their own. And I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that some non-Sunday school language was probably being tossed around by these guys. Um, And I'm going to censor myself a little bit because there are children in the room. But where in the, is Jesus right now, is probably what they're thinking. What is he doing? Is he seriously sleeping right now? He's the one that got us into this mess. He claims to be God. Do something. I mean, you can picture this. You are about to die. Literally life and death. So maybe for you, that's what your prayers have sounded like lately. Maybe a little more colorful even. The sometimes shouted, sometimes choked back anger and frustration and fear at an absolute boiling point. God, I followed you and you brought me where? To this mess? This is a dead end. Don't you care? Don't you care if I drown? So growing up right on the border of North Dakota, and Minnesota, place Allison knows well, uh, my family used to go tent camping in a beautiful area in northern Minnesota called Itasca State Park. It's where the headwaters of the Mississippi River is. And there's a lot of Douglas fir trees and beautiful lakes. Also a lot of mosquitoes, for the record. Um, One night, we were sleeping in our tent, and a storm rolled in. We were at a primitive campsite, which means it required a hike in. And we needed to make a decision, it was nighttime, about whether to try to hike back to our, I think, a minivan or a station wagon, not sure which one, in the dark during a storm, or whether to ride it out in the tent. We could see the lightning over the lake illuminating the clouds, and it made it obvious that it was a very severe storm and it was time to go this is before smartphones and we basically were at the mercy of our own eyeballs and ears eyeballs and ears sounds confusing like eye ears no anyway you get it it was pitch black and all we had was a small lantern and as we set out on the dim trail to the van or station wagon I was horrified to find that the entire trail was moving. It was completely covered in thousands and thousands of frogs. Every step was a few frogs in complete darkness during a storm. And I was like this tall, right? I don't know how it was young. I called my parents about this just to double check the facts. And my mom responded with just a bunch of frog emojis at one point. It's like, okay, I'm not totally crazy. There was no way around it. We were stepping on frogs. And all the way back, half running, half walking, all our stuff, it's raining. We finally get back to our vehicle, we lay down as best we could, and we tried to sleep. I'm sure not very well. I'm not gonna lie, I was really afraid. I was young, and my dad had like totally blacked out some of these memories. I was talking to him on the phone yesterday, and he was like, he didn't even remember some of this stuff. I do, and my mom does, evidently. I had a good reason to be afraid. Like, it was a bad storm. And the sheer power of Mother Nature, it does humble us. In the Midwest, it could be a flood, or a tornado, or a cold snap, or even a derecho, like we had in 2020. I suppose in some way, these things are scary because we can't control them. And maybe they're dangerous. We, can't, we can track them. We can attempt to predict them, but we're still in a position of response. There's a famous prayer called the serenity prayer that says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Wisdom will teach you pretty quickly that you cannot control a tsunami or a volcano So how do you operate from a place of serenity when we're confronted with chaos? Where do we go with our fear? How do we accept the reality we face? So like we touched on last week, God really does meet us at the end of ourselves. But the scene with Jesus here feels a little bit like going over to someone who just fell asleep on their lawn chair or their beach chair, lifting off their sunglasses, and then you find that their eyes are totally open and just staring at you like, whoa. (laughs) like You think they're asleep, but they are not, right? It's startling. And I'm not saying Jesus wasn't actually asleep. That's not really the point anyway. I'm just saying that Jesus isn't sleeping on the situation. He knows exactly what is going on outside the boat and inside the hearts of these men. So remember, these disciples are intentional learners. They call him teacher. In Matthew four eighteen through 22, we remember the call. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Tough day for Zebedee, I guess, right? These guys walked off the job to follow Jesus. And now we find them, they've been following him around for a while now. They're back on the shores of the lake. And they had spent some time ministering to hundreds of people, like I mentioned. And I mean, these guys are like, our context, reliable green checks and planning center, right? These guys are showing up every day. Literally, Jesus again today. Yep, wake up, Jesus again today. And yet, I mean, they're they're like giving everything they have. This is not just, I'm I'm trying to pick some Christian cliches, is what I guess I'm trying to do. Like giving, uh, tithing their 10% of their time, talent, and treasure, right? Like, they've uprooted their whole lives, their jobs, their dreams, and they're physically following Jesus around because they were convinced that he was the real deal, or at least they thought, like, the real what? So these gutsy brothers find themselves kind of like the Israelites, fleeing Pharaoh in Egypt and running into the Red Sea. God, you didn't seriously bring us all this way for generations for this to end at the, at the ocean, right? The sea. The Terrible place, what are you doing, God? Don't you care if we drown? Okay, back in the boat, Mark four, verse thirty seven says a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? We got up, or he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. He said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So the waves are breaking over the boat. They're taking on water. They're going to capsize. Violent wind, huge waves, and on top of the waves, there's almost certainly rain and lightning, and it's dark. It's dark. And they're squishing frogs with every step. It's very bad. No, I'm just kidding. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So two questions. Do you think that was a serious question? Don't you care if we drown? Like, did they actually want an answer there? And two, do you think Jesus actually did care? I think the question itself, the first question, is clearly a rebuke of Jesus from the disciples. Do they really expect him to say, no, you're right, I don't care. This was just all pretend. But do you think Jesus cared? Well, we'll find out. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. So Jesus' first words aren't even to the disciples. He's not like, chill, 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 guys, we got, I got this. It's to the wind and to the waves quiet, be still, and then whoosh, calm, serene, safe. The power of Jesus reveals who he is, and the mediation of Jesus reveals what he's like. Jesus is God incarnate. It's as if for a moment the painter paints himself right into the piece and then stares right back at us. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the King they've been and we've been waiting for. Colossians 1, 15-17 puts it this way, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 2.9 puts it this way, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness he is the head over every power and authority and that is good news that's like an amen in my heart the power of jesus reveals who he is this man is god but wait what kind of god is he like zeus or thor no jesus is the savior The Messiah, meaning he came to save. It's literally what his name even means. The mediation of Jesus reveals what he is like, meaning he mediates. He steps in and does something between two parties. He comes in between death and their lives, death and our lives. He stops. Quiet, be still. Like the mast of the ship, bridging the darkness and the light. In Rembrandt's painting, Jesus provides a way for us to cross over. But how? Well, the simplest way I can think to explain this is a transfer. Let's look back at Mark 4, 39 through 41. It says, he got up, rebuked the wind. And let's just take a minute. That language, don't miss that. That sounds a lot like the resurrection. Right? Like if you were in a different church context, you would say, He got he got up. Right? But he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. These guys go from being terrified of the storm to being terrified of Jesus. Their fear moves into the light, you could say. Or maybe a different way to see it is that what they see as having ultimate power transfers from nature to Jesus from the storm to the sovereign. They knew what they had just witnessed was God in the flesh unveiling himself for a moment. They thought they believed, but maybe not quite like this. This was something different, something new. This was like Moses and burning bush level stuff, like the parting of the Red Sea. This was like watching Brock Purdy make it to the Super Bowl. Like this is, oh my gosh this is crazy, I cannot believe this is really happening, kind of stuff. Friends, this is what it's like to be born again. It's different. Like, it's, it doesn't mean it comes in a flash of light in the way that we expect it, but it is different. It's also what it looks like to grow in faith. It's, what we're studying, an epiphany. But one that causes growth, continual growth, perhaps... More like a string of little epiphanies. This is what we've been studying in this series. God steps in and says, yes, it's me. Over and over and over again, he puts himself in the boat. We don't know where to turn. He invites us back with these words. Quiet, be still. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? If you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it's not as though these disciples just go around in like a permanent state of terror with Jesus. They're freaked out. It's more of a reality check moment. This is exactly what they needed. A wake up call. Maybe that's what you need, I don't know. As I thought about this, I thought, what are the moments in my life where I've been shaken up? (laughs) And it doesn't mean it's always fun. Sometimes it takes coming within an inch of our lives before we remember that Jesus is with us. Fear is a complex emotional response to a perceived threat or danger. It's normal to be afraid when you're about to die in a shipwreck. But the problem was the lack of trust in Christ, ultimately. And it reared its head in an accusatory question. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So here's the way I often see it happen. It's more like we just forget. We forget the thousands of seemingly little ways God loves us and blesses us and provides for us. And even the big ways sometimes, we do tend to take things for granted. All the way down to our own existence, our ability to reason, our respond to him or others. It's a little bit like if thieves broke in and stole some precious works of art Jesus had painted with the brushes of time and experience on the canvas of our lives. But of course, we don't want the memory of God's love and kindness to fade away, even or maybe even especially when it involves a time when he walked with us in pain After Rembrandt's painting, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee was stolen, the Gardner Art Museum did something interesting. They actually left the empty frame for the painting on the wall as a reminder of what happened. A memorial of sorts, like an intentional chair that's left empty at the holidays. It represents a loss, but it also represents a type of hope, a hope of restoration and of reunion one of the things being made that things will be made right one day you can even see rembrandt's name is still on the frame we want to remember it's a little bit like visiting an empty tomb of jesus of course the resurrection is much more hopeful than an unsolved art heist although kate and i were kind of geeking out about art heists earlier but the point is that the emptiness itself is what tells the story. It's not entirely hopeless. Sometimes the way we remember how God works in our lives really does depend a bit on how we frame it. It doesn't mean pretending that pain isn't real, but there is a way of acknowledging in our heart that God is both powerful and that he continually mediates for us. Okay, we can be done with Rembrandt now. So what comes to mind when you think about how God has saved you? Where did he step in when you needed him most? How has he revealed himself to you? When did he mediate? When was the last time you noticed his power and his peace? We're gonna face hard things this year and in the years to come, like really hard things, tragedy, scary stuff, that even more certain than this is that Jesus loves you. He really does care. The answer to the question is everywhere. And that's not just me saying it. Like Remember Paul's words in Romans 8, 38 through 39, a very famous passage says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, even storms on on a sea, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But don't walk away today and forget the disciples' reaction. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The response isn't, Jesus, oh my gosh, thank you, phew, I didn't know what we were going to do. They want to know, who is this? It was about the relationship. And their terror tells us they already knew the answer. They wouldn't have turned to Jesus to cry in the first place if they didn't believe he could do something. I think they just didn't expect it to look quite like it did. But this too is the kingdom of light. He saved their lives. And Jesus shines so brightly here that it's almost too much for the disciples to take in. But they will over time. Like a little plant peeking up out of the soil, they are growing, slowly. Two steps forward, one step backward. That is power. And so it is with us. I love This little throwaway verse in Mark 4, when it's talking about Jesus preaching the parables to the crowd, it says in verse 33: with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. I love that. That's so reassuring to me. As much as they could understand. He isn't looking to overwhelm you. Why would he? He doesn't want us to pretend that we aren't afraid or act like we have it all together. He already knows. But I think he does want us to remember that he's in the boat with us, so to speak, and that we can trust him because of who he is and what he's like. So in closing, we remember that the power of Jesus, it tells something about his identity, who he is. And the mediation, his willingness to step in reveals what he's like. He's both powerful and authoritative, but he's also good and he's a mediator. So we'll close with a bit of Psalm 107, which I think beautifully captures the state of our wandering hearts, or at least mine. And it sounds a lot like a song, which it was. But the lyrics seem weirdly modern. So just maybe hear it in a new way. Here's Psalm 107, 23 through 32. Some went out on the sea in ships. they were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people like this and praise him in the council of the elders.